Hello and welcome to another episode of Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Ariane Chavesi to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing migrant crisis. Dr. Chavesi is a senior lecturer in ethics at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, where she is an applied philosopher whose research focuses on reproductive ethics, feminist bioethics, migration, gender, and race. She has written for the London Review of Books, The Independent, and Huffington Post, and is currently writing a book on the philosophy of social justice, which will be published by Penguin in 2022. Now, this episode was recorded a few months ago, but you'll see that all of the issues we discussed are still very relevant today and throughout the COVID-19 management and vaccination process. With that being said, let's jump into the episode. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, Ariane, and thank you so much for joining us on the Just Emergencies podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so today we were wanting uh, to talk about migration and the COVID-19 pandemic. So over the past few years, as we're all aware, there's been the development of what's widely called the migration crisis. Um, Can you give us some background on that and what it means to think of this as a humanitarian issue or humanitarian crisis rather than perhaps an issue of security or, or borders? Sure, yeah. So crisis is an interesting word, isn't it? Because it makes it sound like something that's kind of short term, a sharp peak. But actually, this is an ongoing um, kind of catastrophe that's been unfolding over many years. And personally, I can't see how it comes to an end either, short of, you know, radically changing the way that borders are managed and asylum is sought. Um, So about 80 million uh, people are displaced globally, um, and there are lots and lots of reasons for that. Land degradation, climate change, war, persecution, poverty is a a big one. Um, So there's lots of reasons why people are displaced. Um, I think one of the things that people often don't realise is that most of those refugees are in fact displaced into global south countries, not into global north countries. So I think when we talk about this migrant crisis, we're often talking about uh, the places from which we, we, you and I, um, are located within. So places like the UK, but actually, you know, 85% of the world's refugees are actually located within global south states. As I say, so places like Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Liberia, Uganda, actually shoulder um, the biggest burden here. I do think, though, that when we have these discussions, it's it's important to kind of specify which of those regions we are talking about. And I expect that you and I in our conversation will be most focused on what's going on in Europe at the moment. And there are some good reasons for that, actually. One is that we're located here, 
but an- another is that actually from a moral perspective things look slightly different so if we look at the places that asylum seekers are coming from when they arrive in Europe they're coming from a range of countries that have histories of european colonialism and kind of military intervention um from european powers you asked you know what why should we move away from a kind of maybe security framing to more of a humanitarian framing well i'd say maybe even the humanitarian framing isn't quite the right way to see it because i think a humanitarian framing indicates that something terrible has happened somewhere and we should now help those people actually i think it's more accurate to say that many of the terrible things that have happened that have led to people becoming displaced we actually have either direct or indirect responsibility for and i think that massively changes how we ought to be thinking about what we owe to these people and i guess that is a particularly important question during the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of access to healthcare resources and those surrounding issues. So how does the current COVID-19 pandemic change how we talk and think about the ongoing migrant crisis? For example, has there been any change in political discourse or action around this issue? I think there was certainly the potential for a change in discourse and I think there were moments when some of us were hopeful that the whole world being affected by this disease would break some of the kind of ruts we got ourselves into in terms of how we we think about ourselves as a global community that maybe there would be stronger notions of solidarity both you know within each each state but also um internationally i think that hasn't happened and actually as the vaccine has been released you know we've seen this vaccine nationalism wealthy states like the uk kind of doubling down on how important it is that people in the uk are vaccinated not thinking very much about what happens to those in the global south or those in these kind of liminal spaces of, of refugee camps um who are very very vulnerable we've seen all of that stuff resumed quite readily so it hasn't really delivered for me on one of the things i was hopeful that this situation would lead to improvements within so that's kind of one side of of what's sort of happened in terms of migration and international solidarity and covid-19 another is that you know obviously our travel has been limited so for lots of us we have not been able to move around in the ways that we ordinarily would but in fact refugees are still moving around and have been all year really lots of people are using more unofficial channels for travel we've had record numbers of people attempting to cross the english channel from france into the uk for example and that's despite the number of cases in the uk being incredibly high so the desperation that these people are facing is so great that you know they're prepared to kind of take on that sort of risk and what we haven't seen either i should say is the a sort of change in attitude within the uk to those refugees i think i think in some ways maybe tackling the pandemic has made people even less sort of open and generous about how they think about the suf- the other forms of suffering in the world so at the beginning of this i would have liked to have thought that we'd have learned some lessons i don't see that we have at this point 
going back to the refugee and migrant populations, would I be correct in assuming that these populations and communities might be very underrepresented in terms of testing for COVID-19 and also the resources that are available to help them deal with the pandemic, both economically and socially, but also in terms of their access to healthcare and all those kind of resources? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, if we're thinking about refugee camps, then we're talking about massively overcrowded spaces where people are necessarily unable to adhere to social distancing guidelines uh, because there just isn't enough room to do it. Or, you know, in terms of using the bathroom or using the shower, these services are just so sort of overused. There are so many people and so few uh, of each of these things that it's really, really hard for people to kind of keep any distance from each other. The things that we need, like, you know, frequent hand washing as well. I mean, that's not going to be possible if you've got limited access to water or soap. There's all these sorts of challenges within refugee camps. And then on the other hand, if we look at within the UK, for example, undocumented migrants, there's then the challenge of even if, say, testing is available to those who are symptomatic, you're unlikely to approach a kind of medical professional or, you know, unlikely to go to a GP clinic or whatever, if you are in a situation where the home office could be contacted um, if you start to have these interactions with healthcare workers or um, with the healthcare institution. So it is the case that if you're an undocumented migrant um, and you incur debts within the NHS, then the NHS is required to share your details with the home office. Although that wouldn't apply in the case of tests for infectious diseases or treatment even for infectious diseases, the details of that are so hard to kind of get your head around. Um, it's very unlikely that that information is going to get to the people who need to hear it and that they're going to trust it, frankly. You know, so it's not just about whether tests are available. It's about whether there's the sort of trust there that people will be able to do the right thing. And we know that we know that undocumented migrants are underusing the health service at the moment, as they always are. And so there'll be lots of cases we're not picking up on that. During the pandemic in particular, though I, I guess this momentum has been growing before that as well. But during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of academics involved in the media or in outreach programs, writing op-eds and really getting out there and doing advocacy work. So there has been this growing call recently for academics to use their positions of power and privilege and knowledge to do advocacy work. As an academic activist or as academic activists, what should we be thinking about and doing in relation to the, to the migrant crisis and improving the situation? It's a really good question. It's something I think about a lot myself. I think it de depends a little bit on the field that you're in as to which particular ways you can be useful. I'm a philosopher and one of the things I think is most important for me and for people who work in, in similar related fields is to just cut through some of the misinformation actually. I think we're very well positioned to do that. One of the big things that I've been trying to tackle is what I call the asylum paradox. So you hear a lot in the news about these people who are entering the UK illegally and they're, they're criminals and all of this. And, you know, in some sense, 
they are entering the UK illegally, right? We can't argue with that. But I think the bit that is missed is that there isn't actually a way of them entering legally. So, you know, you can come into the UK in two ways. You can either come in with a visa, with the appropriate documentation, or you can come in by some kind of covert means, you know, illegally. And the UK government has over the years made it the case that for any country which is seen to be economically, politically, socially insecure in any way, they require visas for people to travel from those countries, right? So if you're coming from a a wealthy country, there might be some deal where you don't need a visa, but you absolutely do need a visa, where the UK government suspects that you may have reason to want to stay in the UK beyond the term of your visa and apply for asylum because they don't want people to be applying for asylum. And so then we have this weird situation where you can only apply for asylum if you're already in the UK, but you can only really get into the UK illegally. And I think this this just isn't made clear enough to the public how much of a kind of trap this is. And then, you know, clearly what that means is that people have to undertake extraordinarily dangerous journeys in order to get here and, you know, give their life savings to kind of smuggling groups who can bring them with no guarantee that they'll, they or their family members will make it alive, but who will, who will try to get them across borders illegally. And I think it's things like that that we need to make clearer to the public that they have been misinformed. I mean, the other thing that I mentioned earlier as well about the global south shouldering the burden of resettling, you know, something like 85% of, of the world's refugees, I think that's not widely known either. And so people have this idea that the UK is overburdened and we are being asked to take on an unfair share of this particular burden. And that's just not true at all. And in fact, we're not even meeting the kind of meagre targets that have been proposed by the government. So I think the role of academics is to make sure they are well informed about what is really going on here and then informing the public and i think once people have better information about the reality of of what is powering this this kind of ongoing crisis then i think they would see things quite differently i hope they would see things differently you know and obviously we're up against um the misinformation campaigns of the government and the media unfortunately and i guess speaking of the media how would should can academics go about getting that message out to the public because Publishing in academic journals is obviously great, but it does or it can function as a bit of an echo chamber, or at least to the extent where generally it's only other academics or other people involved in scholarly work that can get access to those journals, to those opinions, to that information. So how can we go about making our advocacy work and our information more widely accessible? Yeah, yeah, it's an important point. And certainly, you know, the papers that I write in philosophy journals reach a very, very small group of people. And they're people who are primarily interested, I would say, in the ideas rather than any practical outcome that might come from them. I think there are so many platforms out there these days. I think a lot of academics are already kind of using those platforms. So writing um, for online magazines and newspapers is, is a great way of kind of getting these messages out, appearing on radio and television, probably is more impactful still. 
And then there are other there are other places as well. I live in Brighton, and we're very lucky to have an initiative called the Free University of Brighton, which is local academics giving lectures to the general public, which are completely free. So that's a great way of kind of speaking to audiences that you wouldn't ordinarily be speaking to, and who will go away and, and speak to the people that they know. So I think there are definitely ways to do it. I worry that for many academics, they are under such pressure from their institutions. You know, clearly a lot of weight is put on academic publications that there isn't a lot of time to be thinking about how to kind of focus on these more kind of moral missions. So yeah, the, the platforms are out there, and as academics, we are extremely fortunate in that we are seen as credible and authoritative. And I think with that, you know, there comes a tremendous responsibility. I think we have to use them as well as we can. Hopefully, this podcast episode will go a little bit of a way towards towards sharing that information. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, f- for discussing this really important topic. Thank you, Rebecca. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.